This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Margaret Roach. She's the author of three books, including A Way to Garden, which was originally published in 1998 and named Best Book of the Year by the Garden Writers of America. The book was recently republished in a 21st anniversary edition. She has been a leading garden writer for 30 years and is currently the garden columnist for the New York Times, where she began her journalism career some years ago. She hosts a public radio podcast and holds lectures and garden tours at her Hudson Valley, New York garden. She's an organic gardener, and she's my big sister. Welcome, Margaret. I wondered if you were going to tell the sister part or pretend it wasn't true. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, full disclosure. So on your website, awaytogarden.com, in your online biography, you write, quote, there was little hope of escaping a career in the world of words, being born to a couple of journalists who also love to read. And I love that you always credit our upbringing with your current life, but set this up a bit more for my listeners, who are writers, by talking a bit more about personal taxonomy. Walk us back to where you first discovered the garden as a place you might want to inhabit. Well, for me, as I think for many people, the garden came as kind of an escape mechanism, a hobby, a getaway, a refuge. When our mother was ill, we were in our mid-20s, our mother was ill, our father had died, our mother was ill with early onset Alzheimer's, and I went home to the house we had grown up in to live for a number of years and kind of manage that care. So, you know, there I was in my 20s and got a job at night at the New York Times as a copy editor. And what was I going to do all day? And it was a pretty depressing situation. And so I escaped not too far because I couldn't go too far. I was on duty, so to speak. And I escaped to the yard, which was a traditional suburban yard in need of some redoing, rethinking. And I knew nothing. And I got a book. I think maybe you might have given me the book, Crockett's Victory Garden, an old classic how-to month-by-month kind of a garden book uh, from a PBS show of the time. And I just started doing the things really badly. (laughs) But, you know, 40 (laughs) years later, I'm still doing them. (laughs) But, you know, that's how it is. And, and, And so, again, it was an escape. It was a refuge. It was my occupational therapy of that moment. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And so you worked three long, well, long stints at three places, the New York Times, Newsday, Martha Stewart, Living Omni Media. Uh, Very early in your career, you wrote the New York Times Sunday Women in Sports column. You took a break for two years to edit the women's sports magazine created by Billie Jean King. You were the first fashion editor at Newsday and then the garden editor there. And it was your Newsday columns that attracted Martha Stewart to hire you as her first garden editor and led to your long career at Martha Stewart as the head 
head of the Internet Direct Commerce Division, managing the birth of MarthaStewart.com, and after that, the editorial director of the magazine's books and Internet. Well, you know, like, phew, sister, I watched this and thought, wow. But all the while, you had a weekend place and commuted religiously to that spot, transforming what, when I first saw it, was a very simple two-plus acres into a place of absolute divine inspiration and peace. And that's where you created your website, awaytogarden.com, where you wrote two book-length memoirs. And what I always noticed is you kept your eye on what you really wanted through all of this, our mother's illness, your career, what you really wanted, which is what you do now, living and writing from your garden. So many of us have to do that in our writing lives, have careers that afford us the privilege to write what we want. Can you talk a little bit about how to keep your eye on the life you want as a writer amid the challenges of a big career and what it does for us if we have our eye on something like that? I don't know that I kept my eye on it for the first couple of decades. I was editing other people's work. I I mean, I did have, as you mentioned, I did have some writing stuff along the way, but none of it was of the heart. I wasn't a sports person. It wasn't meaningful to me. It was an opportunity, a career opportunity. And that's very different, I think, from Mm -hmm. when you merge your passion, the material of your heart with your writing or your quest to write. And I think that yields very different material. And so that took me a long time to I don't know, you could say indulge myself in or permit myself to do or whatever, because it was a bit of a leap. And frankly, if it hadn't been for the fact that I got to love the garden so much and I really wanted to, again, merge my professional life and my passion, and the Times didn't have an opportunity where I was working at the time, and Newsday did, I wouldn't have gotten the chance, you know, to start writing a little bit closer to my heart. So... You know, where the opportunity is depends on on your career trajectory and your nerve, I guess. Mm -hmm. But the thing I just want to say to people is it doesn't even matter because I could have 20 years prior been writing about whatever my passion was. I mean, you know, we we don't have to have an outlet and a a paycheck necessarily to write about it. So Mm -hmm. I could have probably started earlier. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. It does so much for us. And well, I interviewed our mutual friend, Anna Quinlan, a couple of weeks ago, and she talks in her new book about the power of writing in our lives. And that's what you're talking about. We can write anywhere, anytime, and it will, I believe, educate us on what we really believe, what we really feel about things. It'll guide us all the way through. And when I think about writing, it's just true. All my life, you've been my older sister, of course, but I've taken a lot of cues from you, a lot of rules of living, God help us both, but the single one that you have delivered to me more than any other in writing and in life is to start small. You always remind me of this, no matter if it's a big-sized sister problem or whatever, you always get me to the small material. So let's talk specifically about writing, small to big. Since garden writing, all writing now comes in all shapes and sizes and is delivered on so many platforms. You and I are both huge admirers of the writer Verlin Klinkenborg, whose miniatures, as they're referred to, used to grace the pages of the New York Times editorial pages for years. And he writes books as well. But let's talk about those little gems of writing. They're short. Maybe 275 words is a really good place to start. What do you think a writer can bring to such a small space as that? Well, a really famous garden writer, English garden writer of yesteryear, Vita Sackville-West, she 
said something really beautiful, I think. She, by the way, made this very famous garden called Sissinghurst with her husband, Harold Nicholson. And, you know, one of the most visited gardens in the world today. But anyway, she said, it is necessary to write if the days are not to slip emptily by. How else indeed Mm. to clasp the net over the butterfly of the moment? And the butterfly of the moment is the small thing, yes? But it's also the potentially big thing if you start small and then blow it up. What do we learn from a butterfly? We learn about metamorphosis. (laughs) We learn about transitions Mm -hmm. in life. We learn about having a very short time being ephemeral. We learn dot, dot, dot. I could go on and on and on. Just from that little tiny butterfly, what are all the possible narrative arcs, right? And what are all the metaphors and and so forth? And what can we explore about it and ourselves? So to me in gardening, that's especially the case, starting small, because looking closely almost with the hand lens is where you're going to get a lot of your best material, I think. I think so, too. And I think as we move through the various forms I want to talk about in writing, you just brought up the metaphor. And I think the metaphor and the ability to use it is kind of a trust-based experience. The metaphor of the garden is rich and lyrical. And I, I think maybe a little intimidating to people. Like, we see ourselves in the frog. We see ourselves in the butterfly. Much of the rich metaphor of all of life lives there. But my audience is writers, and newer writers are far less inclined to trust when they have that funny dual-purpose moment that metaphor provides. So let's talk about following your own eye and learning to trust it when you witness a bond between yourself and nature. Let's just talk about that metaphor and the trust that you have to be building with your own eye and, and soul, or how would you put it? Well, I mean, I think that in the fact that nature and the garden as a place to experience nature in in some form, you know, and from Thoreau to Emily Dickinson and her poetry, I mean, everyone who has written about some experience with the natural world, you know, what they have been privileged to kind of bear witness to every single season is life and death, right, and everything between. So, you know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of, it's super rich material. I think the important thing is that we're not just to anthropomorphize the creatures, which I think would be better in a children's story, a children's book, that type of writing, you know, than to maybe learn from them and maybe elevate it a little bit, again, starting small and blowing it up. But I think the other thing is that we do a better job with the material that's provided to us outside in nature and in the garden if we really learn the language, the vocabulary out there, and mm-hmm. science out there, mm-hmm. so that we're not just using sort of, you know, cheap surface levels of, like I just did, you know, I said the butterfly t- teaches you metamorphosis. Well, of course, but which form of metamorphosis does a butterfly experience? Is it full metamorphosis or one of the other types that are partial that some insects go through? And, you know, it, like we need to learn, and what's it called when it comes out of its covering and becomes an adult butterfly. What's that moment called? Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's learn the language, study the science. And there's all these beautiful, almost poetic words that are scientific words. And that was one of the things that really took me into writing almost memoir-style, garden-inspired material was 
having the knowledge from having written how-to gardening when I was at mm-hmm. Newsday, when I was at Martha Stewart, having studied enough to be able to answer reader questions and write a how-to article about you know how to grow a tomato or whatever, a lot of which involves science. And I would find these incredible words. So it wasn't just I was finding the incredible insects and flowers and processes going on outside. I was also finding the language of science. And therein mm-hmm. lies a lot of real beauty, too. I mean, like there are words for, uh, like the smell of the earth, geosmin, and when rain splashes on the warm ground, petrichor. And, you know, there's all these words for, I mean, when leaves hang on the trees all winter, like some oaks do and beaches and so forth. And you see that there's like brown leaves. Why don't they let go? Why don't they drop them? That's called marcescence. And so it's also giving us a whole vocabulary, you know, a whole bunch of research material to work with, as well as the beautiful inspirations. Yeah. And I just have always marveled at your delight in the portal that the language gave you. I I never worry that if this universe goes into a self-destructive mode, I always think you're going to like sort of walk into a big hole in a tree and just disappear. Like you just know how to do that. (laughs) Woodchuck burrow. (laughs) Just don't go down a woodchuck burrow. burrow. Yeah. They're stinky down there. It's stinky. (laughs) Yeah, they're stinky. I don't like them. You don't like them. But I do marvel about what you know about mosses and moths and birds and frogs and plants and ticks and other bugs and raccoons and woodchucks. But I also know that we both grew up in a house of books and that we both currently live like that. You keep a yards-long library of field guides surrounding you and that you constantly take classes online. And I know that every interview you do informs you. So this speaks to the admission that we cannot know everything and that we have to continue to learn. And I think for young writers, not knowing things keeps people from writing. So just take that a little bit further before we return to some of the other forms of writing and talk about the research and the humility that underpins it. Well, I mean, I was lucky that I had a newspaper job because I was being paid to interview people, to be a reporter, so to speak. And and an editor, but especially in the years I was garden writing, finally. You know, I was being paid each week to go and interview someone who knew presumably more than I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked them to be my interview that week on how to prune a tree or how to, you know, whatever. And Mm -hmm. so I learned by interviewing. And listening is really important, whether you're taking a class or whether you're interviewing someone. Listening is a really important skill, I think, for a writer. Mm -hmm. And so that was one area where my education, I have no formal education in science or horticulture or anything like that, that came in. And then the other thing is books. Again, we were brought up with a lot of books, but probably the biggest category of books in my personal library the last 30 years is field guides. And I have a whole cabinet that's just filled with field guides. Field guides to lichens and field guides to butterflies and field guides to moths and field guides to gulls and leaf mines and all kinds of esoterica, mammals, and you name it, I've got a field guide for it. And it's in there <laughs> that you find, well, but it, and it's really important because if you don't, yeah, you know, is. if you're going to write anything, you need a cast of characters, right? Mm-hmm. And how are you going to come up with characters when there's no other people in a lot of what a gardener does. I'm, I'm alone. I'm out there alone. So yes, there are other creatures, you know, there are frogs and there are, you know, bobcats and there are bears and there are whatever. But 
you know, you have to figure out who your characters are going to be. And that's part, that's the other part of the research. So there's the, just like when a food writer who becomes a memoir writer, you know, who's not just writing recipes, but is writing beautiful, incredible, a lot of, there's a lot of great food writers that go beyond the recipe, Mm -hmm. right? And so in the same way, Mm -hmm. but they know their culinary material, right? They don't use the wrong word for something. So in the same way, you know, maybe they were trained, right? Or maybe they were a restaurant chef first, but they also could write. We have to be that, too, if we want to write about nature or the garden. We, we mm-hmm. have to also be trained, and even if it's training ourselves. And so for me, between the interviewing experts and taking, you know, courses and things like that, but, but mostly interviewing experts and then collecting all these books— and studying them, you know, that's where I got my knowledge, the solidity that I needed to flesh out my stories, but also learned about a potential cast of characters, you know, because I learned who was connected to who and what was kind of going on out there. And then the other thing I would just Mm -hmm. say is that I always say curiosity is the mother of invention. You know, you just Mm -hmm. have to ask, why is this green? Why is this leaf not green? Why is this, you know, this size and that's that size? Why is, you have to ask and then you have to go inside and you have to find out the answer. Why do some leaves come out of the ground in spring, not green? Why in the woodland garden? Why why are some of them purple kind of colors? There's a reason. Go find out why it's not chlorophyll, but anthocyanin pigments, you know. Go find out. It might make a story. You know what I mean? It's You have to follow those moments of curiosity, those inspirations. You absolutely do. To be a writer, you've got to be curious. I think it's the highest quality. I mean, it's the first and foremost quality of, of all writing. And so we'll get back to, we, we talked a little bit about the miniature, the Verlin Klinkenberg sort of uh, model of writing. Right. <clears throat> and after that, we've got some other forms. Um, you and I are both huge fans of Abigail Thomas, the memoirist, who also writes in brief takes. So the form is not unique to nature writing, of course, and, and I recommend her writing to everyone I know. In fiction, the equivalent is Lydia Davis, winner of the MacArthur Genius Grant. All writers should learn about this short form. But after the miniature, my favorite form absolutely is that of the personal essay. And you've written some doozies from a look at your life via your freezer jars. <laughs> Just love that, how your life can be told in those things that are in your freezer. Right. To my personal favorite, in which you took on a painful separation you and I experienced when our mother was ill with Alzheimer's and how a few years later we found common ground when I took up gardening. And, you know, I'll try not to cry when I say that no love letter I ever received did more sealed more wounds or cured more ills in my life than reading that piece by you. So talk a little bit about the personal essay, even written from the garden or especially written from the garden, and what we can take on there, please. They just kind of come to me like I'll be in the shower or something or driving the car. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, if I were to sit down right now and you said, well, I need a personal essay by a Friday at 2 p.m., you know, wouldn't happen probably. Those for me come out of the semi-conscious moments when I'm apparently ruminating, but I'm not actually thinking consciously about the subject. And um, mm-hmm. so they're, they're not forced. And those are the harder ones. Mm-hmm. You know, I can go outside right now and I can find 10 creatures or why questions to answer or whatever. And then I can fold myself into those subjects or connect somehow to them. But it's not the same as the type of work you were just speaking about, about like where we've both at different times written sort of call and response essays about common childhood subjects or adult subjects where we had a different perspective mm-hmm. on them or whatever. Those come a little harder and that's a little, <laughs> that's a little more work. 
So I'm probably not answering your question, but... No, I love the idea that it comes from the unconscious or the subconscious. I think you're absolutely right. I think we get a feeling about something. I think we see something, and I think it's informed by everything we've heard, thought, felt, tasted, listened to, whatever. And it is that arresting. It's an arresting feeling that precedes a personal essay, I find, where you start to see something you want to palpate back or move forward. I actually think you just hit it right on the head. It's a more misty, if you will, experience than recognizing a character in the natural world and saying, I would like to take on that kind of frog today or whatever. And then there's the op-ed that distinguishes itself by being opinion-driven. And you've written some brilliant ones about our need to protect this precious world of ours. So how do you make the determination when to write an op-ed? Do you just get pissed off about something or, you know, some urgent need to tell people to take care of something, just just speak about the motivation to write one of those, because they're very different than the personal essay. Yeah, and I do think that's the motivation behind that is, as you say, when there's something that I want to get out there to people. Like, uh, there are subjects, for the, even for the weekly New York Times column, there are subjects that I write about that are feel to me more urgent and that might make a good op-ed as well and more a point of view or an advocacy position. And then there are others that are, again, like how-to writing. And then there are others that are just completely personal, essay-ish. So I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, it really depends on the subject. And these days, I don't say like, ooh, I've got to think of an op-ed to write or anything. It, it comes to me periodically, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, when a subject mm-hmm. is is upsetting me or is motivating me. So yeah. And anything can come up at any time. Like I can hear in my head. I'm not a person who can write you can't tell me that I have to write from, you know, 6 to 10 every morning and blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. I can say that and I can do that and I can be here at 6 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the morning until 10, but nothing may happen. And <laughs> so, and then suddenly in the middle of nothing happening on the thing I'm supposed to be doing, I can hear in my head the lead for a story that I'm not supposed to write for three weeks. Mm. And then I have to open up another Word document on my computer, and I have to write that lead, even though maybe I haven't done all the research yet, but I know what the story's about suddenly. You know what I mean? It's, again, yep. it's this levels of consciousness, and I, I wish I had a better answer, <laughs> but my process is not methodical. It doesn't have, because inspiration doesn't come that way for me. It just doesn't. And I think that's a great answer, to tell you the truth, because I think that, that people who are new to writing think that those of us who do this sit in a chair on a scheduled time and that the muses speak to us and that they go, what they tell us goes right out through our fingers. And of course, my keyboard has got blood on it from the times I've hit my head on it, pounding my head. I mean, literally tears, blood. You pace, you cook, you stir, you prune. I know your process. And when something comes, you always go in and write it down. You, you open up a new Word document, as you said. So I think people have to be willing. It's like, it's like standing opposite a pitching machine all day long. You have to be willing. When the pitch comes, you got to do something with it. You may not be able to write that piece, as you just said. Three weeks from now, that's the piece you're going to write. But you got to note it. you got to write it down. You've got to be hospitable. Right to these ideas. Right. And you have to catch them when they come flying into consciousness. You really do. I mean, Absolutely. And the thing is, they can come flying in in these various forms, you know, and then you have to discern, is that an op-ed? Is that a personal essay? Is that a miniature? Because that's what a writing life is. 
a writing life is not just writing one big book that you begins with your great-great-great-great-grandfather and ends with what you had for lunch today. It is this and that, this form and that form, taking the ideas as they come. Some of them have to be researched. Some of them you know full well what you're going to say because they come from a very emotional place. So let's talk about the longest or the most current one you're doing. And then I want to go back and talk about A Way to Garden, your book, for a minute. But I want to talk about this idea. Since 2020, you've been back where you started, at the New York Times, now as the writer of their In the Garden column. And writing in a a regular column is an astonishing commitment. But with the advent of such platforms as Substack and every other newsletter delivery idea, lots of people have it in their minds that they want to become columnists. And they have access to a place to regularly publish. Any advice on how to decide if you have it in you to be a columnist? Because it is, it's a job, right? Yeah, you know, in my subject area, you would have to have the expertise <laughs> to be able to land that job. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't just come out of nowhere, I guess. So, right. but I think for 12 years after I left my career, most recently at Martha Stewart, maybe well, actually 15 years ago, I started a, a methodical, as deliberate as I could, kind of writing practice because I knew I was moving away for the first time in like 30 years of, you know, full-time journalism career to being on my own. And so I started a blog and that was the thing that everyone was doing at that time. And I'm not saying it's the answer, but the great thing about it is that if you, and it could be a Substack thing now that didn't exist then. Mm -hmm. If you do that, you will have in an orderly fashion, chronologically arranged (laughs) with photographs, if you want, your thought process, what's on your mind, you'll be putting your material somewhere besides on printed out sheets of, you know, uh, of Word documents or just stored in the computer where you can't even remember the name of the file and you don't even remember which ones you wrote. It will have a shape. And that garden blog was what really got me to compile what became the material of many future (laughs) forms of things, whether an op-ed piece or that blew up an idea that I had done on the blog, small or... Or, you know, some of them were short, like you're saying, these are some miniature things. And so I think it's good to have a practice. I know I said I didn't, don't have a practice, but I did in those transition years force myself. Mm-hmm. And even if it was just once a week and I sent out an email once a week and even in the beginning when I had, you know, 50 subscribers or whatever it was, it made me think about what subject matter was out there and have a, an organized record of it. And that was helpful. That was really helpful. So, you know, it was almost like journaling mm-hmm. in a way, but not not journaling as in me, 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 but, you know, trying to write a combination of how-tos and, and essays and so forth. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so that helped. Mm-hmm. And in this period after you left Martha Stewart, in this period as you were gathering your thoughts and, the, you, and you wrote two memoir and you wrote and published in 1998, this gorgeous book, A Way to Garden, um, as I mentioned before, named Garden Book of the Year and reissued for a 21st anniversary edition in 2019. And you have a line in that book that I love that states, I admit it, I garden because I cannot help myself. It is no wonder so much of gardening is done on one's knees. This practice of horticulture is a wildly humbling way to pass one days on earth. Even the root of the word humility comes from the soil, from the Latin humus for earth or ground, and a good soil is rich with the partially decayed plant and animal material called humus. Humbled or no, gardener was the label imprinted on me when the souls were handed out, and so be it. 
Gardner. So let's just talk as we wrap this up about bringing the full force of your knowledge of discipline and a writer and of organic gardening and to this book that is really just a beloved book in the world. And talk to us a little bit about that decision and what perhaps you learned in that process. I feel it's such a triumph of your expression and talent. What were you thinking when you said, I'm going to turn this, this knowledge into a book? And and how does it feel to you now in that 21st anniversary edition? Well, when I had done it 20, however many years prior, when I had started on the first version, so say like 25 years ago, I probably started on the first one, I needed a structure as every writer who's going to do a long form or even a short form thing needs, you know, you need, you need a lead, you need a kicker mm-hmm. and you need a middle. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, so it, with a book, it has to, you have to have chapter structure, right? So what was my structure going to be? And again, understanding something about the fact that I wanted to merge myself with the how-to knowledge, both parts were going to be in there, mm-hmm. that it was going to be more than outdoor decorating and how-to that I was going to be in there somehow to the human experience, the connection, the intimacy. I came up with a structure, uh, again, like 25 years ago, which was not to have four seasons, the chapters be four seasons, like so many garden books are, or month to month, like so many garden books are, but to have it be six seasons, each one of them likened to a season in my own human life, conception in January, February, birth in March and April, youth coming next for two months, adulthood in the summer, senescence, the winding down, the stage of life I'm at now when, you know, you're not building new cells and being more vigorous, you're sort of falling apart at the seams, and then death and afterlife, (laughs) the end of the year. Mm. Yeah, and so having accomplished that maybe 25 years ago has become the guidepost for all of what I think and do and write about gardening and nature is, again, I am connected to it. I am part of it. It is part of me. We grow and learn together, the garden and nature and I, you know. I hope mm-hmm. I'm. it's the better for me, and I'm certainly the better for it. So that connection, that's my shtick. That's Margaret Roach's version of this. Mm-hmm. So I think every writer has to find that out, and I don't think it's a bad idea to sort of pretend you're making a table of contents for a book, you know what I mean? To see what you're about, whatever your passion is, your subject matter, or an outline to sort of see mm-hmm. what kinds of words, what kind of, of metaphors, what kind of material comes to mind, you know, when you free associate that way. So I'm thankful that I did that then. We're also thankful that you did it. I've read the book many times and given it as many gifts. And every time people talk to me about that structure, They particularly talked about the surprise when they come upon the section on senescence and the appreciation you have for the dying back and the the closing down. So I can't thank you enough for coming along today and explaining that and sharing this time with me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say you're my favorite writer. And thank you, Margaret. I so appreciate this. Oh, well, that's very sweet. It's true, too. It's Yeah, well, thank you. And the garden is not just about, nature is not just about celebrating pretty flowers and the big bloom and stuff. You know, those peak Mm -hmm. moments, it's about celebrating the passings to all the other parts. And again, that's what's so important is to figure out what your take on your subject matter is and then hopefully stick with it. (laughs) Hopefully stick with it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. The writer is Margaret Roach. See more on her at awaytogarden.com. 
hear her podcast everywhere podcasts are available and get her books everywhere books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, where I offer online classes on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow Cordy wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 